Hey everybody, Jim here, and this is a special Get Fresh Crew. Florida Fresh Cup Crew. Spotlight. It is a Get Fresh Crew takeover with Batman Beyond Mark doing Batman Beyond number 36 and Simon doing this week's Lois Lane number four. And if you want to hear more podcasts, I'll remind you that you can go over to Patreon at patreon.com slash weird science and get a bunch of things, including this week's podcast early and a bunch of spotlights, a bunch of other DC, Marvel, independent comic shows, and things that aren't even involved with comics at all. Now, I want you all to relax and listen to Mark and Simon talk about some books. Science. This is Batman Beyond Mark, and uh, we have Batman Beyond 36. All of the fun. Written by Dan Jurgens, pencils by Rick Leonardi, the inkers Andy Parks, colorist Chris Sotomayor, and letters, as always, are by Travis Lanham. And the covers is pretty good. Like the, the normal cover with the guest star Flash, and then you see the, the, new, the new design for Old Man Flash. It, it's great. And the, the variant's okay, which is kind of like a big, ominous-ish, scary Batman beyond flying in the city. Kind of using the wings as negative space a little bit. Um, and then he has his claws out, which Dan Jurgens seems to... Forget a time set or part of the suit, but whatever. So we pick up right where we left off. Well, right where the uh, the Flash and Ten left off last issue. Is Ten is like, oh my god, the Flash is here to save me? What the heck? Um, and she pretty much is like, hey, get me up to speed. Um, and she does. And I I don't really have a problem with the the opening of this. Uh, or with the Flash in in really uh this part. Where pretty much she's like, she gets him up to speed. You know, saying like, false face. The other guy's split. I'm 10, by the way. X-Ray Flush got straight. And he's like, I heard. Uh, and he's like, uh, I guess this makes it uh, two against one. Uh, we should be able to handle this. Uh, and 10 points out is like, okay, so the, the fast guy, he can split. So uh, it's kind of more three against one. And, and he's in Flash is just pretty much like, you know, like I, I, I can, you know, I, I got this. I'm, he doesn't say it like this, but I mean, he's the Flash. He's the apex speedster. He'll be fine. Uh, but we get to a full page, which would be actually really, really good because uh, we see pretty much you know both parts of split uh or split has split um and it is kind of you know pincer tech flank them for both sides and then we have uh false faces batman beyond in the middle now, the real problem with this and this is a uh, a panel i believe eric put up under his review if i'm correct uh <laughs> we we have false faces batman beyond standing there and his wings are out and, and yes um for some reason rick leonardi has just been very crazy with the wings but but this is the worst like this like last issue we had the wings technically coming out of the cowl. This is worse because, and, and this is something that is not at any other point. Um, it, it's only this one panel, but like the wings are basically like his, his arms have like turned into the wings. Like there, there's, there's no definitive point where it comes out behind him. It's just the arms and like back part just turn into the kind of like wings on each side. It, it, it reminds, it's like very long sleeves. It's, I, this panel would be fantastic, except for that, and I, I, I really hate it. And it really kind of epitomizes Rick Leonardi, the just the fact that he just doesn't seem to care. Like, it, it, he, I, and I'll get into this towards the end, but it really feels like this whole thing has been a piece that was 
forced on Dan Jurgens. Like it was like you're using this guy, and it almost seems like they were doing the Marvel. I believe it's the Marvel method where uh, where basically the 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 writer writes out a, like a, a short treatment or like plot synopsis of like what happens in the in the the issue, and then the artist does it, and then the the writer has to go in and kind of you know fill in the stuff, and that's what it that's what it feels like. Um, because because this is just this is this is bad. Um, but then yes, the flash is pretty much like you know I got the runners, you take the the false bat and and ten and I can sympathize with this. It's like it's like oh awesome, they super cool. I'm having a team up with the flash. I I it doesn't really feel out of character for her to be like oh okay, I'm effectively being acknowledged by a professional superhero. Um, but yes, so. <laughs> So Flash just charges in and just wallops both parts of Split. It points out, like, you guys probably haven't, like, dealt with anybody who can actually match your speed. And it, it's great. Um, and then 10, yes, engages uh, False Face, Batman Beyond. Um, and this and this is funny because it's both mocking and it, it's amusing. Um, so as Batman Beyond, or False Face Beyond flies up, he's like, uh, I put you down once, girl. Uh, history always repeats itself. Which I want to remind you that yes, Ten was taken down last issue by Split. She had a uh, false face, dead to rights, and it was Split's intervention that 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 saved him. He had nothing to do with the counterattack. She put him down, and, and I just I, I found that funny because part of me was like, oh, that's just bad writing. But then it's like, no, this guy's been extremely cocky. Like th- this is this is straight up him just being a cocky dickbag. Um and. <laughs> And I, I like how and then Ten is like, you know, like, you know, you're a bit overconfident moron. Um, and then this pisses off False Face and he's like, it's on. And, uh, and, and I will say, except for the art one place, the, the issue starts fine. I will give it that. It started fine. And then we see Matt uh, and Bruce back at the, the cave. And, um, oh boy, um, I didn't realize Snapper Carr was here because this is, this is, this is what Matt says. Working with the Flash. Working with the Flash is the swayest thing ever. We can't possibly lose Mr. Wayne. And I'm like, oh my god, Matt. First of all, don't jinx it. Second of all, what has happened to you? Like, you you come off as like a like, like an old Silver Age character right here. Like, gosh and golly, gee, Batman. Like, oh my god. It it really, really Matt, this this arc. This this effectively trade has been insufferable, and I hate this. Also, it's really weird that the back of his head just and goes back and ends in a point. Like that's like I I there's or he has like a there's a there's a curve in there. Pretty much they can't get Matt right, and we're going to get back to why that's an even bigger problem later on. Um, and Bruce is like overconfidence, Matt. Uh, he's like uh like there's something uh, more with split at play here. Something we aren't fully aware of that could change everything. And it's like, can you be more heavy handed in your writing? Uh, yes, actually, we, the first issue was the first, the second issue where Matt's like, I don't want to talk about this anymore. Let's move on. Like, I don't want to talk about this big thing where Bruce clearly sees that there's something wrong with Terry. Let's move on. Oh my God, I hated that. Um, so yes. So now, uh, the Flash and Split are having a speedster fight, which means they're running. And Flash ru- is running up a wall as, as both parts of Split are chasing after them. And he's, uh, he, he, he kind of comments, he's like, oh, these guys are pretty, like, I, I, I know, you know, I, I thought I knew everybody who could use the, the speed force. 
Uh, these guys must be new. Um, and Bruce, you know, over the radio says like things change, Barry. And Bruce is like it's, and he's he's commenting like that, you know, basically being the superhero is not as easy as it used to be. Um, and Bruce comments is like you're getting old. Like I quit, you should have you should have as well. It's like Bruce, no, you quit for. Well, there's several reasons that you've quit. You've uh, in this continuity. Um, in this this particular Batman Beyond continuity, um, I think even just this run, I could be wrong. No, no, between both runs, um, under Dan Jurgens, you you quit for two reasons: one, because your back got broken again, or because it's the original thing where you picked up a gun, like you you had heart problems and you picked up a gun. Um, so it, it had nothing to do. I mean, yes, part of it was the get a gold thing, but it, it was less to do with getting old as either you broke your basically your rule. Or your your body just couldn't – it just became unsafe and then you thought you lost your child, like Damien to it and you just got depressed and gave up. Um, and then Barry just continues. He gets to the top of the roof. He's like – the speed – he points at like the speed force keeps him going. Um, but, but you know, he's willing to bet that these rookies don't, don't know how to use it as well. And Bruce is like, use your uh, age and experience. It's like he could brute force these guys. He's outrunning them. Like – like, he's still the apex speedster in this situation. Both parts of Split get to the top of the roof. And they're like, they're pretty much like, we really shouldn't be doing this. This is crazy. And they kind of, pour, and then the other one's like, we have to. Um, and they're like, he's gone? <laughs> and and then I, I legitimately enjoy this entire page. Uh, except for at the very top, uh, where, um, oh, was it uh, Adam uh, has a very feminine... Uh, like, like his his model, his character model has an extremely long neck. Um, actually, both of him and uh Caden have long necks, except Caden just kind of looks like a rag doll. Uh, and Adam, I don't know, just how he's drawn looks very feminine. He's like has an hourglass figure. It's just it's it's very weird. Um, but uh, I, I like how they're like, wait, he's gone, and just Flash just vibrates through kind of like a like a. a like a smokestack pillar thing that's in the building. And he's just like, he points out like hiding, like uh, seems the concept of vibrating through walls is pretty new to you. He just comes through and just basically double punches them, knocking them both to the ground. And he just very casually, uh, and, and I love it, he's just kind of like wagging his finger at them as they're like, they're like, should have hit us harder than that old man. He's like, I'm not done, as he wags his finger. And just very, like, you know, casually just spins his arm at them to create like a, a vortex. And he's like, word of advice, don't fight opponents uh, who comprehend your potential better than you do. And uh, I, I'm not sure if I said this on the podcast. I know I've said it to Jim and Eric. Uh, seeing this, seeing and, and knowing how Tan Jerkins pretty much seems to be, um, he, he uses this book, it seems, to trial run writing characters. Because uh, he did that, he, like he had an entire arc with... Um, uh, Oh, with, with Dick Grayson, and then and then you know, coincidentally, at about the time that ended, uh, he started writing Nightwing. Uh, and, and I know the Flash is probably going to a hundred, but uh, this would not surprise me if this was this was basically him getting uh, used to writing the Flash because he's going to be the next person on the Flash. Um, and I have to say, I I don't hate Dan Jurgens' Flash, and I would absolutely read it. Uh, but then, um, uh, you know, Caden. Is starting like both Adam and Caden, both parts of Splitter are, are hurt, and they're like, they're, "Like we we can't handle this." And then Caden uh, just picks up a like a, a loose little just like it, it's not even that they damage really anything. I guess it might have been part of the building, but 
It's very unclear what it is. He just grabs a piece of just metal that he finds and throws it at the Flash. It hits him in the head. His Flash just stands there. Um, but as he does this, Caden says something, and it's just very weirdly phrased. He's like, uh, he's like, pretty much before uh, Adam says, uh, we have important, uh, we have more important concerns, Caden. And Caden's like, right. Who cares about the bat? And what he wants? It's, it, it would make sense if he was saying, who cares about the bat? And what he wants. Like, like as a, as a statement. But here he says, and what he wants? And what he wants? Question mark? It reads very weird. Um, but yes, the, the piece, hit, the metal hits the flash. And Bruce is like, you should have seen that coming, Barry. And, uh, Barry comments, like, I shouldn't have given, I shouldn't have taken a calm. Um, and then Split reforms and tries to run away. So far, it's, it, it, there's been problems, but it hasn't been the worst. And then we get to, uh, we get to Split running away. And they pretty much, like, we have the piece of technology, this glowing, fuzzy, like, orby ball thing. Um, uh, and I do like this where just Flash is, is like behind him and just punches him like, uh, like, ooh, that thing sounds interesting. Why don't you, uh, slow things down? So we could, so we could talk about this, uh, or so you could tell me about it. And he's pretty much just standing over split casually like, uh, so what's your story? Like, what are you really after? And they, they pretty much tell him that he's dying. And this is kind of the part where I really hate it. It's we rush through all this stuff. Bruce, yes, Master Detective, he's making a lot of assumptions here. And just putting things together that are, I mean, they're correct, but it's also pretty circumstantial. Um, for instance, Barry's like, like seriously, like this isn't a trick. He's like skeptical. And Bruce just comes in and is like, we've seen them show signs of we- uh, weakness and instability uh, to stay separated. I think they're telling the truth. Now, we have seen that. That, that the weakness and instability has been set up. Sure. Uh, but it's just, I don't know. It's just just jumping to conclusions of they must be telling the truth as opposed to their powers just make it so like when they're together, they're pretty strong. And when they split, yes, they can divide and conquer, but it it, it weakens them. So it's it's like eh. um, at this point, um, Barry, because Barry is a good guy, is like, like, uh, you know, if, if there's something like uh, like if that's true, like, tell me what I can do to help. And uh, Split points out, like, back at their boat, there's a machine that can save them. Uh, that's why we need that miniature power source. Um, and so he picks him up, and he runs him to the, the boat. And he makes a comment, like, like you know, I he, he feels bad leaving Ten to fend for herself. And Bruce is like, no, she's fine. Like, she can handle false face. Um, and then we get to another part I like. And that and that's, it's so annoying that I, I'm liking some of the stuff here, and then just we're going to get to the ending and it just quickly falls apart despite the, like, <sighs> okay. So we see that, uh, Terry, or not Terry, False Face Beyond and Ten are basically in a, in a, in a dogfight. Uh, except the wings are drawn right this time and it's like, okay, so why weren't they drawn well in that big panel in the beginning? But whatever. Um, <laughs> and pretty much Bruce points out, like, he doesn't, like, False Face doesn't know how to properly use the suit completely. Like, she'll be fine. And False Face is like, love the flying card gimmick. Uh, my next look uh, is going to be wearing you. At which point, and Ten is just like, ew. And basically what we see here is that she's pretty much flying circles around him. She has complete control of this fight. Because if you remember, in the in like last issue, uh, she had complete control of that fight. Like, when it was just against False Face, she was kicking his butt. Uh, so, yeah, he start, he throws some, like, explosive pellets, he's like, enjoy these, and she just kind of casually comments, like, rookie move, like, like, you, you threw those at me instead of ahead of me, um, at which point Bruce recommends that she use the gas pellets that are in her satchel, and then we see Matt, and his, just, his face has gone all puffy, like, 
like, at some point in this, did his face just get all, like, puffed up? Like, what happened? Like, it looks swollen, because it's just how it's out. Um, and he's like, like, false face, like, uh, points out, like, won't false face switch to oxygen? Bruce comments, like, he hopes so. Um, so, Ten does the gas attack, uh, just in front of, you know, false face, and he ends up flying through it. And he, he realizes, wait, Batman can, you know, go into water, right? So there must be an air supply, and he tries to switch to oxygen. Um, and Matt kind of comments to Bruce, like, so that didn't work? And, and I like this. This is an interesting thing about this version of the suit that I like. Bruce points out, like, it's an emer- like the, the, you know, the, the underwater stuff is an emergency system. Uh, so it can be activated remotely. Which makes sense. For instance, if there's an explosion and, and, you know, Terry was thrown out, he might be unconscious, they could just activate the system for him so he wouldn't drown or something like that. That's really cool. I like that. It also bothers me that they don't seem to have the... <sighs> Whatever. Whatever. I'll let it go. That they're, that they're not able to, like, use the, the, pre- the system, the better and beyond suit, like, override thing. But they can use this. Whatever. It's it's a stupid plot hole that we're just going to move on from at the moment. Um, and so False Face flies through this. is like, you won't win. Like, cough, cough. Like, Flash. And he sees Flash is taking his guy. And it just he just goes after him. Like, full speed. Um, and uh, Ten, like, races after. Um, yeah. Uh, and, and points. And he jumps to a lot of conclusions. It's like, oh, the reason that he must be after fault, like false faces after split, is because he wants to. He wants the ability to to be two people, not to mention their speed. Uh, and then we get an an old time Silver Age comic ad in the middle, uh, or style ad for Snickers in the middle. That was very confusing the first time I read this. Um, and then yes, Flash gets them to the boat, uh, and then they start up the device, and then we get to. What's a pretty decent moment here where Flash is setting up the stuff and he's like, he kind of realizes what's probably based on like what he's seeing of all the stuff. He's like, he realizes that they're, they're probably caught between dimensions. Uh, you get pulled back to this reality, uh, when your, uh, when your brother separates, but it's also what's weakening you. Um, and then we kind of get a little recap and, but it, it's natural. He's like, like, this is the machinery that they, uh, that they used to experiment on or experiment with them, uh, on them with. Um, and like we need the stabilizing stabilizer matrix uh, unit uh, miniature power. So pretty much they needed the thing that they just stole to make everything work. Um, and uh, Flash pretty much says like like uh, hoping uh, I'll separate you permanently so you can you can live free and clear might work, but I- I'm fairly sure you'll lose your speed powers forever. Then we go back to the cave. Matt asks, "They're okay with that?" Bruce responds, "Of course, Matt." They want to live. You didn't actually... Like, that's a good character moment for Split that you just didn't give them. Like, if you had them in unison say yes, that would have been great. And then you can have them... Then you can have Bruce say this. But they never actually have the agency to say yes. We, we get the implication that, that that's what's going on. We even get the implication that that's what was said off panel. But it, it would have been a good character moment. It would have been... I don't know. It would have given them agency, I, th- I think is the right term for it. Because right here, they never actually say yes or no. So, I, I don't know. It, that just bothered me. It would have been so easy to do, put that in. Um, and then as they're as it's uh, about to, like, they're pretty much, like, they're about to start the stuff. Caden uh, says, like, uh, if it goes bad and you can only save one of us, uh, make sure it's Adam. He's the good one. And, and Adam is like, Caden. Um, and Flash says, like, uh, I won't let it come to that. 
Uh, Bruce reminds him to be careful of power surge. And Flash continues, like, like I got it. I'm something of a scientist myself. I know only, like, another 30 seconds, and we can't... And that's when False Face busts in. He's like, no, they're mine. And they're like, oh, God, he followed us. And he starts grabbing the equipment. He's like, uh, no power source, no experiment. He grabs for it. And Flash is like, no, don't. The energy flow. And then it, we see... <laughs> We see Melanie get there as, as Tenet, once again, uh, flying, and she sees that the just lights and the ship starting to, uh, the boat starting to explode, and she's like, that can't be good. And then, yes, she goes, she sees it explode, uh, and then she's like, oh my god, Bruce, what do I, and Bruce says, you know, there might be survivors, so she jumps in, um, Bruce says he's still receiving data from the suit, uh, at, uh, it's at least somewhat intact, and we see False Face in a very torn up Beyond suit. Uh, in the water. And she dives in, she gets him out, and then Flash comes over and they, they get him to land. And they, they try to do CPR, but it, it's too late. False Face is dead. They remove the cowl and they're horrified to see that False Face still has Terry's face on. And, uh, Melanie's like, comments like, it's really creepy. And honestly, I thought, you know, he'd revert to his true appearance. Um, <sighs> and Flash is like, I don't know. And then, Behind them, we see right where the boat was, like, where, where it had been destroyed. And we see some of the, you know, basically, like, the bubbles coming up from the, the sunk the boat and stuff like that. And it's all green and bubbly. And my first thought is, wh- why are, are we getting blight? What does blight have to do with that? Because that's a, that's a thing that we've seen in even the, the animated series at one point is him coming up out of the water and it being green like that. And it, to be fair, the art is very invocative of it. But at this point, I'm like, what the heck? So then Fla- or Flash says, like, uh, he also didn't find, you know, out what happened to Adam and uh, Caden. He did a quick search, and he didn't find a trace of them alive or dead. Um, and then this is a good moment right here, I'll admit. Uh, Melanie uh, says, like, like, you've played Hero for years. Do you ever learn uh, to live with this? And Flash is like, with the death? Or with death? No. Saving lives is what keeps me going. It's like, okay, that's a, that's a good moment right there. I like that. Then we get back to the cave, and we get the one page, the one page, the one page in this entire story arc that Rick Lenardi has done, where Matthew McGinnis actually looks like the same person panel to panel. And, I wanna, and I'll get back to why that's relevant when I do my kind of like full recap thing at the end, but it's, it's kind of inexcusable that it took this long. Um, but, and then... Matt says, it's like, but shouldn't his face have reverted? And Bruce is like, I did some, I, I, I've done a, uh, some research. Like, it seems, you know, when he, when false face, you know, it takes somebody identity, uh, there's a, a psychic nullifier kicks in so he can wear the victim and, and learn their mannerisms. Uh, it also nullifies the victim's awareness of who they actually are. Happened to me. And Matt's like, so, so what happens? If false face dies as Terry, and Bruce is like, since he didn't move on to another identity or virtue to his own, like, I'm kind of concerned that Terry probably still has no idea who he is. And then Matt looks absolutely horrified. He's like, he's out there, on the run, and all alone? I, I may never see him again. And then we cut over to the police combing the harbor, uh, like, where the boat was, and, and I have to say that this is, this is really cool, except for the ending, and the ending here is what really brings it down. Um, so we have Barbara saying we ran in all, uh, we ran in all operations search, Barry. There's no sign of Caden, Adam, or that split, uh, for that matter. Uh, and Flash is like, uh, thanks for trying, Barbara. Barbara responds, uh, it's Terry I'm worried about. Flash says, 
Shouldn't be that uh, hard to find him. And then this is a very confusing panel. Um, so we have three people in it, all their backs turned. Uh, we have Ten, we have Flash, and we have Barbara Gordon. So from the word bubble that is coming out of Ten's mouth, like her mouth, I, I, I will put this in the Slack chat for anybody who's curious. I can't imagine that it came from anybody else except when I read it. The response is, he's a murder suspect now. That really feels like a follow-up to what Barry sa- you know, was saying. He's like, shouldn't be that hard to find him. He's a murder suspect now. That makes sense. Then, coming very clearly out of Barbara Gordon's head, is that's preposterous. Coming out of Flash's butt is, uh, even if he doesn't know who he is, why is it coming out of Flash's butt? Like, I guess it could be coming, like, from Melanie's, like, lower back, but it's it's just, all of the other ones are pointing to somebody, and that one is actually physically overlapping the Flash, and all of those visual indicators point to it being from the Flash, but it absolutely isn't. Um, then, uh, Barbara Gordon turns, um, two panels ago, she looked absolutely ancient, and now she looks like she's in her, like, 20s or 30s, and she says, like, uh, uh, commenting about Terry, in his situation with no sense of who he is, and then we see these word bubbles, because they're still on the pier, word bubbles going over where all this green bubbling is, and then in a second, where blight hand will come out of the water, there are a ton of police there. They have just said that they have just, you know, done a full search, they have they have pretty much sent teams underwater. Like, there's no sign of them. But they didn't. So she says, like, his moral uh, character or anything else, he, he could be capable of anything. And then somebody else says, do everything you can, assuming it's Barry, can to find him, Commissioner. At this point, if anyone deserves a break, it's Terry McGinnis. And that the Terry McGinnis part goes on the next page. But straight up, we see, like, bright green bubbling. They're, they're on the pier. This is pretty much happening like, right behind, like, this is less, th- this is maybe 20, 30 feet away from them. I would say 50 at the like this, like right where the boat was. And then Blight's hand comes up. They apparently didn't search anywhere. Uh, Caden, uh, Adam, or them as split is absolutely on the bottom of the harbor because they didn't actually send teams in. I do not believe they did, despite what they said. Because Blight's hand's coming out. It's not trying to hide it. It just shoots out of the water. And I'm like, great, fantastic. What the heck was that ending? You, You could have done it. You almost stuck the landing. And then we get to the last page, and uh, where we finally catching up with with Terry. Um, so last time we saw Terry, uh, he had just beaten up some police officers and had escaped. Um, this was happening at the same time as uh, Ten was confronting, or they, pretty much the in parallel of Ten confronting um, uh, False Face and Split, more or less. We've done it within a minute or so of each other's, my guess. This entire thing has taken place over a day, maybe two days. I would be shocked if this entire uh, arc had taken place in, in a time span of more than seven or 48 hours. My guess would probably be 36 at the most. But yes. So, we catch up with Terry McGinnis, who looks absolutely nothing like any other version of Terry McGinnis we've seen, because his face changes every panel this thing, and including his uh, his figure and his weight class. But we'll get to that. Um, Terry is now sporting... <laughs> he He's now sporting a, a very light beard. I would say... Um, Definitely, it's definitely not like like five o'clock shadow. It's it's definitely a, a beard. This is not something a person is a person whose his beard grows very very quickly. I couldn't look like this this short amount of time. This is this is a couple days to a week's growth right here. Like, and we see him in an alley, and there's there's this, this woman who has a hoodie or like a hoodie on and a scarf around her and and gloves gloves and uh, uh boots. Um. And she's like, you know, like, 
take a walk, new guy. This is my turf. Everyone knows uh, uh, I get first crack at this restaurant's discards. He's like, like, go ahead and wait. I'm more proactive. He he just jumps up. It really feels very, like, kind of Nightwing in the sense that it's like, oh, you have the person with amnesia, effectively amnesia, who's doing all this, figuring out their abilities. But, okay, so he does that, and she's like, careful, like, you could get uh, hurt doing that. And he points out, like, uh, better than going hungry. And he, he's like, uh, got you some food, too. And he, he basically is brought, like, actual burgers, like, probably somebody, they, they were waiting to be you know, served, and he grabbed them. Um, and we see, and then we see as they're walking away, his face in the first panel looks more or less fine. Then the next time we get a good look at his face, his face looks fat. Like I can't describe. It looks like he put on fifty pounds. Like like the def- like his face is not you know super skinny and in shape. It's it's of somebody who's well fed, not somebody who's living out on the street. And then as the, as he gets down, we see a picture of uh, like Batman missing. Like a like a billboard like a like a like a TV monitor that's broadcasting something that has Batman Bat, picture Batman on it and then missing question mark on it um and the the woman who's like stick with me and uh you'll be okay kid Terry who looks straight up he he looks like he's like a weight class or two up from where he was as he's he's now very his face is extremely filled out, and he's just, he's he's on the wider side, and he's like uh, more like you should stick with me, so you'll be okay. And it's like you've been like this for like a day or so. Um, it's oh oh it, it it's setting up for the next one, and there's still one more page. So then we see somebody go down to the back cave. Um, is like about time uh, Wayne turned in. Uh, and the the suit is in its auto regenerating thing. Which and, and it says hours later. So I don't know if it's hours later from from when this stuff with Terry happened, or hours later. Pretty much the suit has been fixed that quickly in the regeneration thing. He's like about time Wayne turned in. It's like he never sleeps. And then it, it, it's very clearly a woman's figure. And the confusing part is is it all it looks almost exactly. We don't see this person's face, but like from behind and stuff, it looks almost exactly like the person we just saw Terry with, except without the scarf or around the the hoodie. Like it's you, you made two characters who are supposed to be completely different, I think, um, and, and you gave them effectively the same character model. Um, and she's like like Neo Gotham without a bat uh, to protect it, unthinkable. Uh, and, and then so she takes the suit and she's like, and she basically gets a readout like you know. Uh, the bow suit, uh, recovery tube is open. It's, it's in good, it's been fixed. And she's like, she's carrying it away. He's like, ready to put it to work. And, uh, next issue, the million dollar debut of Batwoman. So before we go anything else, I want to talk about that ending quick. So, uh, instead of using like Batgirl Beyond Nissa, who is in this continuity, um, he's probably going to use the character that he set up, uh, last arc with the, the, you know, the final joke, uh, Dick Grayson's daughter, Elena. Or, as you might remember her, as, as a, a transition, a, a, a plot device. Every single thing she did in, in the the Joker, or the uh, final joke arc, was... How to put this nicely? Um, she, would, she would say something to move the plot along. So she would, she would say something so that a character could respond, and that response would then move the, the plot along. And usually it was, it was very, like, stupid things, or just, like... Like, really? Like, like state the obvious so then the other character can just progress the plot? It was, She was a very poorly written character who didn't really have any characterization. And it bothers me that it, 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 we're not using the, the characters that we already have. And we're just, we're, we're not using the characters that we already have. We're just adding new ones and trying to make false, path, false pathos. But yes, 
So I I was despite its stumblings, I was really liking this into the end, and that end just killed all of the enthusiasm for me. Um, now I mentioned before that I was going to talk about uh, Matt, like like how thank God Matt like finally looks good. So I took the time to do some counting uh, for a bunch of different characters, all of their appearances on panel, not counting in this issue. So but for the other five of the arc. Um, and I noticed something very interesting. So, uh, number one, like the, with a hundred, with a roughly 183 panel appearances, is somebody in the Beyond suit. And the Beyond suit, except for the wings, not counting the wings, the the character model of the Beyond suit pretty much always looked great. Second, with a uh, hundred and eight appearances, Bruce Wayne also looked great in every single panel he appeared in. Number three, with 90 appearances, Matthew McGinnis, who was just horrendous. And then from there, we get uh, Melanie, or then we get Terry at 70, and Melanie at uh, 54. The interesting thing there is that those bottom three um, look completely different in every, almost every single panel that they show up in. And I get the distinct impression that uh, Rick Leonardi just did not care. And it seems to, so it, it almost seems as if this sentiment was felt by Dan Jurgens as... On the 24th uh, of September of this year, um, he, he just sent out a tweet that says, uh, I've said this before. If I were an editor, uh, I'd ask writers to work plot first, Marvel style, and develop artists who'd understand how to make that work. I'd also develop uh, writers slash artists uh, as it makes for very natural production. This very much feels like a... Like him throwing shade at Rick Leonardi, like that he has pretty much had to keep quiet this entire time, like do the part as the company man. And then it was like pretty much like the book is the book's coming out like, you know, like tomorrow, like screw it. I basically very subtly and politically correctly, I suppose, in the sense that he's not directly calling him out, putting shade because every other time Dan Jurgens has, has done this, it's been always directed at somebody like for instance, a while ago when he said any Batman or any Superman writer who has Superman say "Great Row" is a hack uh, writer in the particular week that the tweet was sent uh, in the issue uh, had, uh, if I remember correctly, had Superman say "Great Row." He he he's very subtle with it, but it, it and I could believe that he was, as it would not really be the first time uh, that Dan Jurgens uh, has been screwed around. With DC in the la- in the recent years, with somebody from Marvel coming over here to DC and then just basically screwing over Dan Jurgens in some way. Uh, but yes, so the art the art started to get better here. There's parts of it this this issue I would say has some of the more consistent art in some ways. Uh, but it I don't know if, if ever it felt like the the Marvel method where the treatment and then the art happened and then he just kind of had to work with it. It's this one. Um, and just the flop of an ending, which could be good. It could have worked. Like, the whole blight coming out might have, it might have been like instructed, like he intended it for is like, this is happening somewhere else, but it appears to be happening here. Maybe blight was on the boat or something in like a container. I don't know. I'll be honest. 
I don't care. We'll find out eventually. But yes, so my final score. So I know Eric gave this a a 4-5, and I'm inclined, despite the things that I liked about this issue, with with some of the art and some of the writing, I, I am inclined to give it a little bit higher than that, but the ending is absolute garbage and really does ruin this. This thing is going to read terribly in trade. I mean, Terry McGinnis, like, like apparently the, the Beyond suit was fixed the same night and stolen the same night they had all this going down. Uh, like, Terry McGinnis has apparently become an a, like a very expert and experienced hobo, despite having only been on the street and and honestly on the run for his life for maybe maybe twelve hours. Maybe twelve hours would be a stretch that he's been on the run from the police. So yeah, uh, he gave it a, a five four or a four five, and I you know what I am going to match him. the The art and the good in this book, unfortunately, it's a little it's too little too late, and it does not make up for the bad. And honestly, if, if with all all of the writing in here, yes, there's some writing and pacing issues. It really feels more like <laughs> like the Dan Jurgis was like, I guess I have to write around this art now. Even this no might not have been what I was intending. So yes. Uh, well, thank you for joining me for this uh, this rant, and I suppose also at, at times rave. Uh, I will see everybody back next month, or I guess not see. Uh, I will talk to everybody again next month when we get to see what ends up happening. Just... <sighs> We have a new we have a new art team on this, so that has to be a step up, I suppose. Anyways, uh, back to the podcast. Hello everyone and welcome to Lois Lane Issue 4 by Greg Rucker, Mike Perkins and Paul Mounts. And before I get started, I have to apologise, I'm suffering with a bit of a uh, throat infection this week. So if I sound a little off, um, I apologise. I'll try and edit out most of the coughing if it happens. Issue 4 of Lois Lane is an interesting one. Um, there's there's probably three big things that happen. First of all, we get the the talk between Lois Lane and John. Uh, John basically swings by to tell Lois that he's off to the future again uh, with the Legion. Says, you know, I know you've only seen me for effectively a couple of weeks and I've aged by about ten years. But I'm off. I'm off to hang out with the Legion because Bendis deems it so. Um, it's not a particularly useful sequence for the purposes of this book but it does go some way to making the whole universe feel a little bit more cohesive um the second thing that happens is a big conversation between the two questions Vic and Renee where they discuss their shared history shared memories which may or may not have happened Renee seems a little bit unsure about that and they go over um some events from 52 which I'll come back around to in a bit. And then the third thing is entirely new information. Uh, set in England, there's a woman talking gibberish and then kills herself. Uh, that's a quick recap. I'm going to head into it in detail now. So the book opens with a direct continuation of the events at the end of the last issue, where Lois is wandering into the bathroom, expecting it to be Clark hiding in the shower, waiting for her. So she disrobes. Uh, she's in her underwear and uh john panics rushes around gets dressed wraps lois in a robe uh before announcing that he needs to have a sit down and a conversation with her um they head out to a cafe 
where he's about to drop the, uh, the big news that he's off to join the Legion because of uh, events that happened not in this book. Um, anyone that hasn't heard, yes, John is off to the future to join the Legion because this was apparently Bendis' big plan all along. Eh, whatever. It doesn't really impact this book at all, but it does, um, like I said earlier, it does help bring the universe to feel a little bit more cohesive at the minute. Then we cut to a uh, another diner. Two diners. Greg Record sure does like uh, sending characters to sit in diners and talk over coffee in this book. Uh, and it's Renee and Vic. They're sat down having coffee. Renee starts talking to Vic and talking about um, the memories she has of him. But these are all memories that she didn't know she had until, obviously, they only just met for the first time again last issue. Um... Yeah, she says along the lines of, you know, I, I have these memories of you dying, holding you in my arms. Uh, you're my best friend. You saved my life, but it didn't happen. Um, and she doesn't know who she is anymore. She's she's lost and confused. Charlie counters with a, a nice line. Uh, it's not particularly helpful, but the sentiment is there. He responds with, I know who you are. You're my friend, Renee Montoya, and you're my legacy. Isn't that nice? A big word of DC Rebirth that seems to be forgotten in a lot of places. Legacy. It's nice to know that someone's remembered it. And now we're off to England. Uh, we're off to a place in the Midlands called Heathtown. Um, I did a lot of research for this issue. Uh, there's some references to some chess coming up that I actually went and Googled. Um, and I went and reread the issue of 52, where Vic dies in the mountains. Um, so I figured, why not just double check that Heathtown's a real place? Um, if. Greg Rucker can accurately recreate a chess match from 115 years ago. I'm sure that he can Google an actual place in the UK, and he did. Uh, Heathtown is apparently uh, part of Wolverhampton. Uh, so that's just horrible for everyone that lives there, and I can completely understand this madwoman's actions. Um, so we get an exterior shot of a police officer in his correct high-vis British police officer's uniform, with his flat cap looking through a woman's window. The art in this issue stutters in a couple of places. Uh, this first panel of the UK uh, sequence, uh, the first three panels look very heavily... They look like heavy photo edits rather than actual art. Um, the contrast is jacked way up. It looks like a couple of cheap Photoshop filters over the top. There's some really janky faces a bit later on with John as well. Um, Mike Perkins are up until this point. Well, it was massively improved last issue. I really enjoyed it. Uh, I enjoyed a lot of the smoke effects that he did. Uh, the That trick he pulled off with Superman investigating the track crime scene. But here, I think he's taking a little bit of a step backwards. Um, I don't know. But anyway, uh, there's a British police officer looking for a window, trying to talk to a woman who's holed up inside, uh, sat on top of some sort of uh, occultish symbol. Uh, nattering to herself, she's recreating a chess match in her head. Uh, and all of these chess moves that she says, black queen, pawn d5, white king takes pawn d5, etc., is an actual chess match. As she correctly names it later on, it's the Battle of Hastings in 1895 between Steinitz and von Bardelben. Uh, I don't know if I pronounced those names correctly. Uh, later on, she specifically calls out White King Castle. Um, that happened in Move 9, according to Wikipedia and a couple of other resources I found on this chess match. The, um, the, the black player 
uh, Von Bardelman resigned in move 22. So she's about halfway through the chess match when she decides to put the gun to her head. Um, and the guy like, resigned in move 22 because, and he resigned in a fascinating way, actually. He didn't just say, oh, you've beat me. I, I give in. He just stood up and fucking left. He just walked out the building. He was like, fuck this shit. I'm out. Um, yeah, the Steinitz proved after he had left and his time had run out and forfeited the match. Steinitz went on to prove that the only way to get out of the situation that he had put him in was, and I quote, a ruinous loss of materials, uh, basically sacrificing so many pieces that there was no way beyond that point. Like, even if you got out of the potential checkmate that was happening in five, six or ten moves time, you would have lost so many pieces that the chances of fighting back were just absolutely remote. Um, so that's an interesting, interesting bit of info to put in context of what this woman's up to. She's sort of scribbling occult runes and lighting candles and talking about being hunted and someone coming after her. Um, and then she decides that the only way out is, uh, suicide effectively to, to quit, to up and leave. Um, yeah, it's, it puts the whole thing in a slightly interesting context. I don't know what the whole rest of this scene is about. I don't know what the underlying thing is, who she's talking about, what's coming after her, or who's coming after all of, uh, who's hunting. What is it she says? Um, it's hunting all of us. Uh, it wants to erase us like we've never existed. Um, it could go back to the stuff that's happening with the two questions, uh, their memories, uh, their shared past that seems to have been erased. Um, Quite possibly. The whole sequence ends with um, a rather unfortunate sort of letterbox call-out of the floor rune that she's inscribed, where it highlights the word Leviathan. I say unfortunate because of uh, Bendis's big event Leviathan that's currently wrapping up. I don't think that Leviathan and this Leviathan are in any way related. Um, I hope not. Anyway, it wouldn't make a lot of sense. Although... Yeah. There is some stuff in the solicitations which um, talks about fallout from that event affecting this book. But again, you know, fallout from the end of Superman's Unity Sagas affected this book in the fact that John shows up from nowhere and decides to tell Lois that he's off. So the outcome of Event Leviathan could end up affecting this book in big ways. It could all be tied together, or alternatively, it could just result in two people talking over a cup of coffee in a cafe for four pages again. Uh, speaking of which, uh, we cut back to Greg Rucker's second favourite location, which is uh, down by the river in, I believe Lois is in Chicago, isn't she? Not Metropolis. Um, I can't remember. Uh, but this is now probably the third time in four issues that this uh, Riverside locale has been used. Previously, it's been for conversations between Lois and Clark, and now Lois and John are having a conversation uh, next to it. Um, and this is, yeah, this is where John's face starts to get a little bit funny. He gets some big old teeth in one of these panels. And then he says a very sappy thing. He tells, he tells Lois that, you know, she's his hero. I don't know why. All she did was, you know, drink heavily and then lose him in space. I don't know. <laughs> I don't know what he's got to be particularly enamored with her with. He spent most of his pre-teenage years killing cats and running around with Damien, so, yeah. And then we get back to the good stuff. Uh, Vic and Renee sat in the diner. Uh, we come in mid-story where uh, Renee is 
regaling Charlie with her story of how she pissed off Black Adam by uh, sleeping with Alden during his wedding. Yeah, classic Renee. Uh, Vic makes a joke about how the last time she saw him, he was dying of cancer. Very classy, Vic. Um, and then uh, Renee drops a bombshell that Lois Lane is paying her $500 a day plus expenses. Uh, Vic is confused about this. I don't know whether he's confused that she can get Lois Lane to pay her at all. I'm confused how Lois Lane can afford this. Um, as far as I'm, I'm... 500 a day on top of expenses plus paying for that hotel room. I don't know where Lois Lane's getting all this money from. Um, and then they recount Vic's death from 52. Um, uh, butterfly talk. Advice, blah blah blah. Um, I'm not going to go through how it's recounted in this issue. What I'm going to do is I'm going to open up my copy of uh, the 52 trade paperback right here. So if there's a bit of background rustling, I apologise. Uh, we're going to go through how it actually happened in 52. Um, now, unsurprisingly, Greg Rucker wrote both of these sequences, so it's actually pretty accurate. But there's some um, interesting background material from the original thing that I wanted to bring into it. So it's issue 38 of 52 where Renee Montoya is dragging Charlie's uh, cancer-riddled body up the mountains, hoping that the mysticism of Nanda Parbat can restore his health and save his life. She spends uh, a good solid week dragging his body on a sled up the hill, uh, feeding him morphine to keep away the pain. Uh, Vic's mind at this point has mostly gone. He's he's talking gibberish at times. Uh, Renee is losing herself at the same time. She's this is all coming off the back of her losing her partner in uh, Gotham Central, becoming an alcoholic, becoming addicted to alcohol to try and numb that pain, and then Vic enters her life, sort of rescues her from that, turns it all around, and then that's when Vic gets his cancer diagnosis, and it's very aggressive, and she sees this man who's saved her, saved her life, being taken away from her. She's losing another partner, and she doesn't know whether she has the mental strength to carry on after that point, so she's doing everything she can in order to try and save his life. She's literally dragging his body up a mountain hoping that the voodoo in Nanda Parbat can save him. So in the final few pages before Vic's death, uh, he has a rare moment of lucidity. Um, asks Renee what the hell she's doing, dragging him up a mountain. Tells her that she needs to accept that there are some things she can't change. You know, you know, no, I'm dead. I'm dying of cancer. You can't change this. You have to accept it and move on. Um, Renee says that she doesn't know who she is without him. That's something that's come up a couple of times in this book. Renee's endless questioning of her self-character. And the butterfly metaphor that is talked about in this issue of Lois Lane is basically Charlie telling her that it's not about who you are, it's what you're becoming. Uh, you need to change yourself, you need to become something new, something better. And this is, of course, the catalyst for... Renee to take over the mantle of the question originally, um, and it ends with a figure coming out of Nanda Parbat uh, as Renee huddles herself over Vic's dead body right on the uh, doorstep. She couldn't get him there in time. And then, because I have the old trades, not the new trades, 
uh, I have some director's commentary from Greg Rucker at the end of this issue. Uh, there's a little chip, there's a little paragraph about um, the Four Horsemen story that's happening at this time, which I will skip over. But the following are Greg's worker, Greg Rucker's words about uh, issue 38 of 52 and the death of Vic Stage. <clears throat> Morphine is a wonderful, terrible drug. It steals the pain and it replaces it with euphoria. It is essentially heroin in a medical form. It's addictive, it can kill you. But for people living with chronic pain or dying with chronic pain, it is mercy in a syringe. That's reference to, I mean, the mer- the morphine is talked about in the Lois Lane issue as well. She talks about how the morphine ran out. Uh, there's several shots in the run-up to Vic's death of this medicine box with morphine syringes slowly running out, uh, becoming fewer and fewer as the issue goes on. And it's not until the morphine runs out that Vic becomes lucid right towards the end and he has that conversation with her. Anyway, I'll carry on. Week 38, day three, was a page I'd had in my mind's eye since the start. And unlike most pages, I hold in my mind's eye, executed in reality far more elegantly than I'd ever imagined. Butterflies. I wish I could have, I wish I could say more about this, but for the moment, all I can say is that some things honestly write themselves. We couldn't have planned it better if we tried. Keith Giffen, for all his cantankerous, crotchety, you young whippersnappers don't know how lucky you have it manner, is a brilliant writer. He is res- he is as responsible as I or anyone for the emotional strength of this issue. In the build-up to writing week 38, I'd been keeping pretty quiet about how I planned to execute Charlie's passing. It was Keith, more even than Wacker or Siglin, who I discussed the story with, and it was Keith, more than anyone, who made this story work. The weeks of dementia pay off in a moment of final lucidity, the bloodstained mask and the question mark in the snow. These are all Keith's ideas. A lot of people don't realise, but when Denny, Denny O'Neill, gave Vic a birth name, he was naming him in part after Thomas Stephen Saz, a prominent academic and psychiatrist. Saz is best known, perhaps, for his work, The The Myth of Mental Illness, in which he argues, and I grossly simplify here, that mental illness is used by society to define and marginalise those behaviours it deems inappropriate or finds uncomfortable. Renee's declaration that she's not crazy was written in honour of that. She's dragging a dying man up a mountain in the hope of reaching a miracle, and that makes perfect sense to her. That is a rational, reasonable course of action to her at this time, even if everyone and everything around her is screaming otherwise. The uh sound that Charlie is making for several pages comes from personal experience. It is a distinct sound, and those who have heard it will never forget it. It is the sound of a body preparing to stop, a vocalisation made by the dying and it is a truly awful, endless noise, so horrible and painful that when it does finally and literally terminate, one is almost grateful for the silence. Those were some of the most difficult pages I have ever had to write. So, the death of Vic Sage was obviously a massive moment in 52, and it sounds like in Greg's career. Um, And we're revisiting this here now because I don't know whether resurrecting Vic was... Rucker's idea, or whether Bendis did it, and Rucker's now running with it. Um, but this relationship between the two of them has always been very special. Um, it was a huge part of Renee's character having to stand on her own again after all of this. And arguably, she doesn't really stand on her own after this. She falls in with several other people. Uh, you know, she had her ongoing relationship with Kate Kane, uh, and a couple of others to mention. But, um, yeah, the morphine, the butterflies, Renee's pure grief at that moment of coming so far yet falling so short. This is all stuff that was sort of wiped away in the transition to the new 52 and the rebirth era. And Greg Rucker's working really hard to try and bring it back here 
exactly how it's going to work, I don't know. Um, there's lots of talk about sleep and dreamers, uh, which kind of ties back to the mental woman in the British apartment, or flat as we call them here. Um, so yeah, maybe, maybe whatever it was that was trying to hunt that woman down says that she's trying to erase things, is responsible for what's happened between Renee and Vic. There is there is a small nugget of mysticism and magic that runs under the question. He obviously has ties to Nanda Parbat. Um, Renee wasn't dragging him there for no reason. He has history with the place. She knew that the people at Nanda Parbat knew Vic and would have tried to save him if she managed to get in there in time, it, despite Vic's resignation to his fate. So after the conversation in the diner, we go back to the river, where Lois and Renee have a bit of an out. Uh, Renee's quite angry that Lois had hid Vic's uh, status from her, uh, which is interesting, because it kind of feels like Renee didn't know who Vic even was. It was just this nagging memory of someone. So to say, hey, why didn't you tell me about someone I didn't know until I literally saw his face, seems a bit out of order. Um... But Renee doesn't want any more any more secrets with Lois. She demands the truth. Lois has her you-can't-handle-the-truth moment. It's all very nice. Pointing finger and everything. Raised eyebrows. And Lois gets her little speech for the issue. Um, this is this is an interesting speech. Um, because what Lois is saying is the kind of thing that I would expect to come out of Renee's mouth. Or sort of classic Charlie. Classic question type, you know, the truth is powerful and wants out type stuff. She goes, uh, you want to know the thing about the truth, Montoya? Most people who claim they want it actually don't. It's like booze or sugar. Too much makes you sick, and the most and most don't have the stomach for it, even in small doses. People want to be told they were right all along, that the world works the way they imagine it should. They do not want to be told they were wrong. Truth is so potent that even given the choice, most people would prefer to ignore it in favour of a lie, make it more to their liking. I've been a reporter for a while, I know a little about truth. I know you have to deliver big truths in small pieces, not because the liars will try to stop you, but because all those people who said they wanted it actually didn't. And they will absolutely kill the messenger, and not just figuratively. That's... This talk about the power of truth is, like I say, a very... Very much the kind of thing that you'd expect to come out of Victor's mouth. Um, not, well, it could come from Lois's mouth as well, but it's interesting to see that she's almost on the same page as Renee and Charlie. I wonder if there's a little part of uh, Greg Rucker that wants to make Lois the next question. Have Renee hang up the ID? Hmm, interesting idea. Um, Renee asks her, you know, what are these truths? What's so powerful? Uh, she says that there's... One truth so powerful that only two people in the universe, and the universe is a very specific word that she uses there, considering she's very recently been to space, and she had those flashbacks in issue one, <coughs> asks asks Renee if she wants to be the third, and Renee says yes, start talking, and that's where we end. Um, like I say, 12-issue series, the pacing's all a bit janky. We should be heading into some sort of build-up to a culmination of the story arc, but it doesn't look like we're going to get a midpoint break. We're just going to plow on into the middle of the story, so we get teases of more things, more ideas. Um, the whole John subplot was literally just there just to appease the Bendis stuff, to make sure that we're very much grounded in the Bendis corner of the universe, but, you know, the, the Renee, Charlie stuff, I love, always will. Um, I 
continue to enjoy the Rene Lois interactions. Uh, they're two strong characters going at it and butting heads, and it's um, it's all at a good time. Um, scores, uh, uh, whatever, seven, seven point five. I don't know. It's really hard to it's really hard to judge a lot of this at the minute uh, on a week to be uh, on a month to month basis, just because we don't know what the bigger picture is at the minute. We don't know how important the things we're seeing are. Uh, we're just kind of stumbling forwards, groping around for some sort of uh, truth. I suppose you could say. How very poignant. Um, so yeah, it's difficult to grade. But I'm continuing to enjoy myself. If I wasn't reviewing it for the podcast, I absolutely would still be spending the two ninety nine, three ninety nine a month, whatever it is that we're being charged for this. Uh, I wouldn't have dropped off yet. Apologies if this uh, review came across a little scattered, or if I took one too many detours into stuff for you. But uh, I know, so whatever. You can't blame me. 